So, Will. Yes? This movie starts with Kia's iconic single, My Neck, My Back. Let's pretend I understood any of those words after this movie starts. Was this your first exposure to the song, My Neck, My Back? Look, Mark, I'm telling you right now, I watched this movie yesterday. I couldn't remember the song that played in it. Is it possible I've heard it before? Yeah, I probably have. I mean, the chorus is, my neck, my back, lick my pussy and my crack. That song tends to leave a mental footprint. It certainly leaves something behind. So... The movie opens with our main character at a lesbian bar with strippers performing to My Neck, My Back. Do you remember the name of the bar? It had a good name. I think it was like Kitty Litter? Something like that, yeah. I can't remember. I wrote Kitty Litter in our script because that was my best guess. But I wanted to ask, what is your favorite scene with strippers in a movie? So I had to think about this because... I'm very on the record on this podcast loving Steven Soderbergh, but I have never seen Magic Mike. I mean, I haven't either. And I think that's even more surprising. The only reason it's not on our upcoming schedule right now is because I'm hoping we'll get a release date for Magic Mike's Last Dance with enough of a lead time that we can do a Magic Mike episode tying in with it. I mean, fingers crossed, but... Here's the thing. The movie's happening, it's just that these Soderbergh HBO Max movies sometimes just show up. Oh, is it another HBO Max one? Yeah, he's a guy who is just like, oh, like, HBO Max will let me put out movies? Then, like, fine, who cares? Which, like, I kind of get his last couple of theatrical movies did not make a lot of money. If there was any that they would advertise, though. He's also three for three on HBO Max, as far as I'm concerned. I think I've only seen Kimmy, but it was excellent. The others are No Sudden Move, Mm -hmm. the period crime movie with Benicio Del Toro and Don Cheadle. Okay. And then the most undersung 2020 movie, Let Them All Talk. Oh, right. Which is like, what if Book Club were a great movie? I just can't imagine HBO Max not promoting a new Magic Mike movie. That's the thing. Like, they definitely will. It's just the question of whether they do like a big ramp up to it or like, boom, it's here. Surprise drop. Fingers crossed we got a release date with enough lead time to record an episode. So anyway, uh, I have not seen my most obvious answer. So honestly, I think I am going to go with like the most famous stripping movie, which is Showgirls. I cannot believe that you have seen Showgirls and I haven't, but I want (laughs) to watch it in the ideal setting. I I want it to be an event. Showgirls is kind of good. Like... I think its reputation is, like, way too far. Huh. I will say, I have seen the John Early and Kate Berlant doing the rehearsal or audition scene where John Early plays Nomi, and it was very entertaining. honestly, great casting. Yes, and Kate Berlant was the rehearsal person, and it did make me want to see the movie more. But I still, yeah, I want to, like, get some friends, have some beverages, really settle in and enjoy. Mark, I watched this movie alone at, like, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) Yes. But it does hold a very special place in the queer canon. So I feel like... Oh, totally. I want to give it the respect it deserves. Absolutely. I watched it because I was doing a big Paul Verhoeven watch. Yes. I assumed that you had seen it. But, I mean, obviously for me... 
So hang on, I didn't. We, oh wait, you I didn't just said pick the yours? movie Showgirls. Like, oh, I yeah. thought I was supposed to pick like a sequence. No, which one is the best in Showgirls? The best in Showgirls. Now there, <laughs> Christopher Guest, best in Showgirls. <laughs> well, if Christopher Guest wanted to make best in Showgirls, <laughs> I would watch it. I, but the problem is, you would want him to do it ten years ago so Fred Willard could do commentary in it. <laughs> yeah. No, what a missed opportunity. I I am kind of torn. Because on the one hand, at the club where Nomi starts out, uh, the cheetah, one of the performers there is, like, a comedy stripper. So <laughs> she'll do stuff where, like, <laughs> like weird sound effect stuff where, like, she'll be, like, pulling down her dress and there'll be, like, boingo sound effects or weird stuff. Um, it's a fun time. And a good example of her sort of, like, having power as a stripper, which is something that Showgirls is kind of all about. The other one is just the actual big show that Nomi winds up getting in and ultimately winds up as the lead, which is this bizarre thing called Goddess that has, like, a vague, like, Hyborian Age plot. (laughs) Like, it could be set in the universe of Conan. None of this surprises me for a movie (laughs) directed by Paul Verhoeven. It's very funny to watch those scenes and try to figure out what the story of that is. Because it starts off like Hyborian Age, where you're like people in loincloths and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden it's like industrial, like factories and catwalks and stuff like that. I mean, that sounds like a show I'd want to see. I mean, it's like old school Vegas spectacle. Wow. Anyway, do you want to cite something that is uh, not, <laughs> like, the famous stripper movie? Yes. Well, I mean, it's the next addition to the canon, I'd say, which is Jennifer Lopez dancing to Fiona Apple's Criminal in the hit film Hustlers. A great example. Which my jaw actually dropped when I watched it for the first time. It's just such a good choreographed dance. It's Fiona Apple, which you would never expect to hear in the film Hustlers, but it also works so well. And then Jennifer Lopez is just a dancer. All of that is true, and yet the Jennifer Lopez moment that I always think about in that movie is her resplendent on that rooftop. Of course. Opening up her coat, <laughs> like, come into my fur. Yeah, I mean, that's the real moment where she is Ramona. God, imagine having that coat. I would feel so powerful. What a good movie. It is a good movie. Anyway, that part of this movie is very short. and Brief. It does come back. It does come back, but also one of the few very lighthearted moments in this very painful-to-watch film that I really enjoyed. So I do want to get started on it. Yeah, I would say I don't think the movie is like... I don't, what's the opposite of lighthearted? Heavy-hearted? Yeah, but not in a bad way. Like, right. heavy-hearted has a negative connotation. Yeah, it's not punishing. No. It's, like, aching. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my heart ached watching this movie. That is a good yeah. way of describing it. All right, so should we get started talking about it? Let's do it. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing our world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are taking a look at the romance of Dee Reese's narrative feature debut, 
her 2011 Sundance film, Pariah. I did not know of this movie before doing some research for movies I didn't know to watch for the podcast. Okay, I was going to ask, because this is a movie that you chose, so it's one that I didn't really know anything about either. I was looking around, trying to find some new things. I feel like we've done some big hit movies recently, what with our Top Guns. That's the most recent one we've recorded. Jurassic Parks. We did Jurassic Park 3. (laughs) Okay, fair. But I thought it would be nice to do a new movie for both of us. And so I was looking around and I found this one. And I read the summary. I saw it was Dee Reese's debut. And I was like, oh, let's check it out. And I am very glad we did. Yeah, it's a cool movie. So have you seen other D. Reese stuff? Because I this is my first D. Reese. This is all. also my first D. Reese. I'd assumed you would have seen Mudbound, but I have not. I just missed it. It was when I was living in Florida, and I was bad about watching streaming debuts. Yeah, I mean, I've been meaning to watch it for a while, but I do know that it is good. Yeah, I think part of the issue for me with D. Reese is that, like, it's hard to complain about, like, getting movies made, but, like, she has, like, consistently kind of gotten the short end of the stick when it comes to theatrical release where she makes this movie it's a sundance hit like wins the cinematography award at sundance ultimately gets the cassavetes award from the indie spirits for best movie made for less than half a million dollars and like that's great so that becomes like a calling card movie next up she gets hired to make an hbo movie about bessie smith Mm -hmm. and like that was hbo the whole time but like cool like still getting more exposure then she makes mudbound takes it to sundance It gets offers from A24 and Annapurna, and ultimately Netflix buys it. So then it's just like on Netflix, especially in that window where Netflix couldn't even get a Best Picture nomination. Like, it's not even their current Mm -hmm. problem where they can consistently get like the most nominated movie, but not crack Best Picture. Like back then, like Mudbound gets an actress nomination. It gets a original song nomination. I think it might have gotten adapted screenplay. It got cinematography nomination. Sure. Because that's the real reason that I remember it because it was the first time a woman was nominated for cinematography sure i see mudbound sticks in my head as being part of that run of movies where somebody gets nominated for actress and original song for the same movie i think it was the first one i think mary j blige became the first one and then like we got gaga for star is born cynthia arrivo for harriet there's been a, a like a little run of them yeah so she does that and then Netflix is like, great, you're, you're our gal. We want you here. And so they produce the last thing he wanted. So again, like, it's hard to complain. Like, great, someone is paying D. Reese to make movies. I'm happy that that's the world we live in. But these D. Reese movies are premiering on Netflix, and I am just less likely to watch them there, which I know probably puts me in the minority of people. Yeah, I do think a lot more people have seen Mudbound than it sounds like based off of us. That's probably in true. In the, yeah. I think my parents have seen it. I also just, like, for some reason kept mixing it up with Godless. I kept mixing it up with the movie Mud, which I think has Matthew McConaughey, and I don't like him, so I didn't want to watch it. Because if I'm ever going to watch a Matthew McConaughey movie and it's not Serenity, what's the point? Number one, we're going to watch Magic Mike. Oh, he's in that? Yeah. Oh, I forgot. He's like the manager. It's part of the McConaissance. Ah, yes, the McConaissance. Uh, Mark, we gotta watch Serenity again. We should have. We should watch Serenity again. I want to watch Serenity in theaters again, and I think that's the problem. That's the real issue. We need like monthly rep screenings of Serenity 
like alternating with the room. I think people would see it if they capitalize on Jeremy Strong. That's what you do. You say like, hey, remember that like that one interview about how like Jeremy Strong might be a psycho that people are constantly like this week I had Twitter notifications like Jessica Chastain or someone like defends Jeremy Strong. I'm like, Jeremy Strong doesn't need our defense. Everyone likes him. There was one interview that's like he's kind of intense and it's like that wasn't even an insult. But anyway, capitalize on that, like you were saying, and be like, you want to see Jeremy Strong in something really weird. How about a movie where he plays the embodiment of rules? God, that movie. I, I might decide it's good. I don't think it's good, Will. Maybe we shouldn't rewatch it. I think you will rewatch it and remember, oh, this is bad, because you only remember the best parts. I remember that Matthew McConaughey in that movie, whenever he runs out of money, he has to go to... Who is it? Diane Lane? Yeah, he goes to Diane Lane, has sex with her. She gives him, like, he effectively, like, prostitutes himself to Diane Lane whenever he runs out of cash. And the movie never really engages with that fact. And then, spoilers for Serenity 2019. When it's revealed that he's living in a video game, that means this is the in-game mechanic for getting more money. In a video it's game like mining designed by his something. son, nonetheless. Ugh. What a weird movie. What a weird movie. You know what movie is better? Pariah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like we said, uh, this movie is written and directed by Dee Reese based on her semi-autobiographical short film from 2007. She said that this was, you know, not directly based on her experiences, but inspired by her own coming out, where she faced a lot of resistance from her family that kept sending her, like, cards and emails and Bible verses trying to convince her that, like, no, this isn't actually a thing. Yikes. So it was produced in part through the Sundance Institute, which is their program for helping mm -hmm. people develop films. That was something she was able to do in part because when she was a student at NYU, she worked for Spike Lee. <laughs> that helps. Yeah, and Spike was attached as an executive producer to this movie. So it was put together through the Sundance Institute. It was also financed through Kickstarter, which makes this an early example of that That's trend. That's early. 2011? Yeah. That's and like 2011 Sundance, so it yeah. was ready for January. Oh my god. So that the Kickstarter would have been like 2009. Yeah. It's at that 2011 Sundance, which is the same one where Like Crazy won the Grand Jury Prize. That movie that we watched? Yeah, remember the movie about how Felicity Jones wouldn't go home and overstayed her visa? Yeah, and then was surprised that it had negative consequences? Yeah, that movie. That movie. All right. Good sweaters, though. Good sweaters. Pariah, meanwhile, won the Cinematography Award for Bradford Young, who is just one of the coolest DPs out there. This movie is very well shot. Yeah. One thing we've talked about before is the way, and this is like not something that's like our discovery, but like the way that so much of conventional lighting of American film does not light black people very well. And I think... Honestly, one of the reasons this movie doesn't feel so punishing is that Young finds all of these fascinating ways to use light to show these different people in different environments. And, like, I think a worse DP or a DP that is less skilled at shooting black people, and this movie doesn't work. It really just wouldn't. Like, the lighting in this movie, how dark it is, but how well it lights the black people... It's so, such an integral part of it. And this becomes, like, the beginning of, like, successive levels up for Bradford Young. This was his third movie. He wins the Cinematography Award at Sundance again two years later for Anthem Body Saints. 
Then he goes on, he shoots Selma, he gets an Oscar nomination for shooting Arrival, and then he's the DP on Solo. It's pretty awesome that he went from Pariah to Arrival. Yeah. With, I yeah, several in between. But Arrival is just such a good movie, and the cinematography in that is another reason why the movie is so good. Absolutely. Um, speaking of Denis Villeneuve, Mark, did you check your snaps today? I did not. Okay, so you may not have seen that Christopher Walken was cast as the Padisha Emperor in Dune 2. Mark is covering his face in his hands. I need a moment. Because he's not on Twitter. I need a moment. That is some of the most wild casting (laughs) I could imagine. But it also suggests that we will get more of the Emperor than you would get in the books. Or who knows? You know, it's Dune. Like, throw in someone cool. Like, Dune 1 is now a Best Picture nominee. Yeah. It won, like, five Academy Awards. Oh, my God. That, sorry. Woo, that blew my mind. Yeah. Oh, my God, and I forgot that Florence Pugh was Princess Irulan. Yeah, I think that has not been officially announced, but... Or uh, rumored. Yeah. I would love to see Christopher Walken and Florence Pugh do a scene of anything together. I love the idea that Christopher Walken and Florence Pugh would play a father and daughter who don't really like each other that much. Seems great. Ugh. Wow. Okay. Woo! Okay. Recentering. Yes, recentering. So speaking of awards, we've been talking about awards. Pariah, as I said, was barely seen. It premiered on four screens on December 30th, 2011. And it peaked at 24. That's depressing. I mean, that's the thing. Like, this thing barely got released. Honestly, it's the kind of thing where, like, it becomes a calling card movie more than anything else. Mm-hmm. It gets her more work. Exactly. You know, it gets it so that when HBO is making their Bessie Smith movie, she's somebody they call. I mean, this is on HBO. Yeah, they don't own it, though. Yeah, but it, like... At least it's available. And, well, also, it was added to the Criterion Collection last year. Oh, cool. So it's available through them. Actually, that made it the first Criterion movie directed by an African-American woman. Yikes. (laughs) I don't know if you saw this. There was a really good piece by Kyle Buchanan in the New York Times in 2020 that was about, like, diversity in the Criterion Collection. Or lack thereof, I would guess. Well, and so, like, explaining what this is to New York Times readers. But then also, like, they interviewed a bunch of people who worked there and, like, talking about what it means. And part of it is, like, Criterion is, like, solid on, like, international diversity. Mm -hmm. And, like, there are not a lot, but, like, numerous directors of color from outside the United States, but very few from the U.S. in there. So they have been working on trying to diversify that, too. And they were working on some of that, like, before 2020, before this article came out. Like, I know Bamboozled came out, like, in the Criterion from, like, a month before that article did. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, so this movie is now sort of a part of that work that they're doing. Well, I'm glad it's getting recognition even, you know, a decade later. I wish more people yeah. knew about it. It's like, I know, it's great. It's a great movie. It was 86 minutes long. Very yeah, it's digestible. Pretty. It's just, I mean, it's so good. So in addition to the Cassavetes Award, it also got an Indie Spirit nomination for Adepero Oduye for Best Actress in a Film. She lost to Michelle Williams in My Week with Marilyn. Wow, that movie did not, did not leave an impact on the culture. Dee Reese also won the Gotham Award for Breakthrough Director, which is cool. And she beat out people like Sean Durkin. Like, she beat out other, like, major filmmakers. And, of course, this was, like, all over the Black Reel Awards and the NAACP Image Awards. 
It won the Image Award for Best Independent Motion Picture. It was also nominated for Best Actress for Adapero Duye, Supporting Actor for Charles Parnell, and Supporting Actress for Kim Wayans. It's also, you know, wins for Best Independent Motion Picture. It is nominated for Outstanding Motion Picture overall by the NAACP Image Awards. It loses to The Help in the most 2011 thing ever. That's a shame. One of those movies has aged much better. Well, they also gave the award to Viola Davis, who has since disavowed The Help. That's so funny. But here's the thing. So they have five nominees for Outstanding Motion Picture. Pariah, The Help. The others are The First Grader, which is a movie about... It's based on a true story about a guy somewhere in Africa who's like an adult man, but who's like, I'm going to get an education and enrolls in first grade. Let me tell you, Mark, the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Awards loved that movie. Isn't that just the plot of a movie we watched? Billy Madison? Yeah, but dramatic. Yes, and based on a true story. Yeah. They also nominated Jumping the Broom, the romantic comedy with Paula Patton. Okay. I don't think And of course, Brett Ratner's Tower Heist. Not Tower Heist. (laughs) And that's one where you're just, oh, you guys just love Eddie Murphy. Yeah. I didn't even remember that he was in that. (laughs) My God. Uh, Tower Heist. (laughs) I thought that was a Ben Stiller movie. It's Ben Stiller, Eddie Murphy, side by side above the title. Ah, okay. That makes more sense now. I That movie seemed so bad. Yes. I, I have not seen Tower Heist, so I can't speak to it. The big thing I know about Tower Heist is that they wanted to release it in theaters and on demand on the same day, and the theater chains were like, absolutely not. It was like the first wave of that fight. Well, I mean, it was trying to be groundbreaking in, I guess, only one way. <laughs> Right. But, you know, when you want to be... Oh, dang it, no, Wonder Woman did it. I was going to try to make a joke about the little things. Remember the little things? No. January 2021, the uh, Denzel Washington, Jared Leto, Rami Malek, like, crime movie. It was like the first 2021 Warner Brothers movie to do HBO Max in theaters on the same day. Okay, that Um, sounds vaguely familiar. Jared Leto got a Golden Globe nomination for it. I hate him. And I was going to make a joke about how, like, Tower Heist couldn't do it, but the little things could, but Wonder Woman did it, like, two weeks before that. Yeah. That was the first major one, right? That was the beginning of the HBO, Warner Brothers HBO Max thing. Yeah. <laughs> what a world we live in. The little things. I watched that movie. Of course you did. You've seen almost all movies. Uh, let me tell you, like, that first half of 2021 where I, like, still wasn't going to the movie theaters and Warner Brothers was like... We'll put the new movie in your home, like, and you don't have to pay 20 bucks. I was like, yeah, I'll watch Tom and Jerry. <sighs> well. Re- it was bad. Respect yourself. Tom and Jerry, much worse than DreamWorks Animation's The Bad Guys. I mean, that's not a high bar, but it is heartening that I don't have to watch a terrible movie when we eventually cover The Bad Guys. I am hopeful about the direction DWA is going. We shall see. I'm curious about... Oh, no. I think that came out. <laughs> what? The Croods 2? Yeah, that came out a while ago. I was gonna. I was wondering if the one that came out that you had forgotten about was Spirit Untamed. I thought that was a horse girl show. It was a horse girl show that then they made a movie of. Oh, so the right. Movie, the movie is, I think, a prequel to the horse girl show that is a sequel to the film Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron. <laughs> I hate everything. <laughs> Oh my god. I think Puss in Boots, The Last Wish looks good. I'm gonna say it. We will see. Good cast. 
Yeah, it's also, like, a pretty fun premise, which is that, like, Puss in Boots has all this daring do because he's a cat and he's got nine lives and he, like, doesn't care if he dies. And then a doctor tells him, like, Puss in Boots, you can't do math. This is your last life. So the whole thing is, like, the daring do adventurer, but, like, now there are stakes and he's not used to there being stakes. I mean, that's pretty fun. Yeah. I saw the trailer for it when I saw the bad guys. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I'll also say this about the bad guys. I saw it in 3D. It used 3D well. This is the year 3D's coming back. We will see. I still haven't watched the Avatar 2 trailer. I've seen it in 3D, and you know what? It was striking to see it and be like, wow, okay, it's been 12 years, and no one has figured out how to do this as well as James Cameron. I will watch it. I will watch it begrudgingly and hope that it is better than the first. They're putting a remaster of the first back in theaters in September, and I'm very excited for it. They're just trying to get back on top. No, they're trying to get people hype. It's already back on top. China did it. Oh, right. I forgot. Oh, yeah. So, should we discuss the the romance of Pariah? Uh, Yeah, let's do it. Okay. It's a small movie. I don't think there's too much about production, like, behind the scenes No, I mean, I basically said what there is. Yeah. So, every week, we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to help guide the conversation. So, this week, I will be bringing us to point one. As discussed at the beginning of the show, the movie opens with our lead character, Lee, Alike, at, I believe, the kitty litter with her best friend, Laura, which is a le- new lesbian bar in Brooklyn. And it does seem like, like, far Brooklyn. Yes, it's Greenpoint, I believe. So, as they're leaving, they're comparing digits, as they say. Yeah, they have a competition, like, who can get the most phone numbers. And Lee just shows phone numbers for girls in her math class which laura figures out and calls her on and basically says like we need to get you laid yeah i mean explicitly lee is a virgin and there's a great sequence where we learn how closeted she is because then they're on the bus together and i'm sure we're going to talk about Mm -hmm. this more but the thing where it's never stated that this is what's going on but you see her when she's alone on the bus just changing layers of her clothes so that she can go home not dressed the way that she was at the club because at the club she's dressed In butch clothes. And then on the bus, she takes off her, you know, oversized shirt. She literally changes into a t-shirt that says Angel. Yeah, like a tight pink baby tee that says Angel. And that was such a telling shot. Like, you just got everything you needed to know. And that's where, you know, this movie is short. It doesn't have a lot of space to do stupid stuff. But it also is so efficient in the way it can tell stories. It's also, like, it's very Sundancey at times. Like, especially in the final stretch. It's very Sundancey, but still manages to be more complex than that might suggest. Where, like, I think the handling of the parents is really fascinating to me because the movie never absolves them of their homophobia, but it does engage with them as more complex individuals mm-hmm. than another movie might. It's interesting having it all tied into their already crumbling marriage independent of their daughter's sexuality. Right, because then really. It becomes, like, like them trying to wrestle with this becomes just, like, another piece in, like, them trying to make sense of what's happening in their lives. Right. And then it just removes Lee from the conversation in a way that makes it even more difficult. And eventually she does patch things up with her father, but not her mother. And even her father doesn't come off as, like, a great guy at the end. Right. He's a guy where, like... This dude is going to put in work, and hopefully he gets there. Right. 
he is willing to maintain a relationship and accept her sexuality, but also is not... He's accepting the fact of it without necessarily accepting it into his life. Yeah. And, you know, it seems like they could build a relationship or it could continue at a very surface level or it could fall apart. And the movie leaves that ambiguous, which I like. You know, speaking of the father, who's played by Charles Parnell, I spent a lot of the movie being like, why is this guy familiar? Looking at his IMDb, like, yeah, he plays a lot of cops. He plays a lot of military guys. This all makes sense. I recognize him because I will have seen him in a film by the time this episode comes out, but I have not yet. He is the guy who says, they're called orders, Maverick, in the Top Gun Maverick trailer. Your reputation precedes you. I have to admit, I wasn't expecting an invitation back. They're called orders, Maverick. And that's what you recognize him from? I've seen that trailer a lot. Oh my god. They, but Mark, I drank out of a Top Gun cup at the movies over a year ago. That's, you know, that's fair. And that's because they made the cups two years ago. I have been seeing this trailer for a long time because of the novel coronavirus. I just cannot believe that it's still not out. Well, it will be out by the time... This episode is released. We are recording the week that it screened for critics, and reviews are good. Are they really? They are. Is it good? It seems like they are especially good if you like the concept of movie stars, which I do. The Gaga song is not good, though. I have not listened to it. I did watch the video of her arriving at the premiere in, like, a helicopter dress. That is fake news. Wait, that didn't really happen? That dress is from 2013. What? Yeah. Oh, no. Yep. Well, I spread that a lot. I showed it to Nick, and Nick was like, she wore this dress in 2013. This is obviously false, because Nick knows everything there is. Like, he didn't... He just saw it and recognized the dress. I believe it. Yeah. Apparently, all the reply tweets are like, this is fake news. Take this down. I think the person may have made it as a joke, too. Like, if you're in the know on Lady Gaga fashion, you probably see that and be like, haha, a joke. Right, but then if you're a dummy like me who admitted at the top of this episode to not knowing what songs are. Yes. <laughs> okay, so anyway, Laura is pushing Lee to pursue a romantic relationship with a woman. And that's the main takeaway from point one. Right, and it's increasingly clear to us from the changing on the bus, but also like Laura wants to go all the way home with Lee, and Lee is like, no, no, I'm good. Get off the bus. Go to your stop. Like, we're not doing this. We're getting hit over and over again with the extent to which Lee is very closeted at home. The movie ended at midnight, and your curfew's at 12.30. I lost track of time. Well, at least you were cute. I like that shirt. Where'd you get that from? Angel. It's old really compliments your figure you know maybe we can go shop and i saw one just like it good night ma and her parents do know who laura is but don't like her right well laura was kicked out of the house for being gay yeah and i don't think that laura knows maybe she does the extent to which that lee is closeted at home laura seems to understand that she is not super welcome at the house yes she does get that But I think you're right that she may not have the full sense of how closeted Lee is. Because at school, Lee changes into clothes she's more comfortable in. So she's pretty much, it seems that she's out almost everywhere except for with her. Not out, out. At school, it seems like it's sort of like an acknowledged secret. Yeah. Like, she would not introduce herself to school and be like, yes, and I'm a lesbian. But 
everybody seems to know. There's that scene where, like, the popular girls are talking, and they clearly consider her, like, one of these school lesbians. Right. Very 2011 situation. Like, early 2000s. So, this kind of brings us to point two, where we meet Bina for the first time. Can I just say, while we're talking about the school, before we move on there, I identify so strongly with her teacher who, like, reads the thing and is just like, yeah, it's good, as, like, a shrug of a response. And the kid's like, isn't it the best thing you've ever read? And you're like, no, I read, like, 300 pieces of student writing a year. I like that she was like, it's not your best. It's not even like, she's not like, you know, oh, it's good in comparison to other students. She's saying, like, you've already showed me you can do better, so go away. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, like I said, just the whole thing of, like, yeah, everything I read is not the best thing I've ever read. Now, I will say, she does seem like a good teacher. I had the same thought, because we started this podcast four and a half years ago being, like, teachers in movies are bad. And this teacher... When that scene is starting off, I'm like, oh, this is like an edge of 17 teacher situation, which is still not a good teacher. But she was just an outright good teacher. Right. Because, yes, she was hanging out with a student during lunch, but it was more like... This was clearly an arranged meeting related to schoolish stuff. Right. And basically, you can tell the teacher is working extra hard to get Lee into a good school. Yeah. I got no problem with this. This good teacher. Well done, Pariah. But yeah, so that brings us to point two, where we meet Bina at church. Lee, Bina goes to your school. Cool. Yeah, I think I've seen you around um, Mrs. Alvarado's class, AP English. Yep. Well, now that we're all acquainted with one another, let's not be strangers. Oh, no, no, we won't. (laughs) Right, honey? (laughs) Bina, you know, I think you two even go to school the same way. Oh. Well, you know, there's something to be said about safety in numbers, right? Yep. Yeah. So Lee's mother, in an attempt to steer her away from Laura and to basically feminize her daughter, forces her to hang out with one of her church friend's daughter, Bina. Speaking of, like, feminization, how about that, sh- that shirt the mom buys? It's so ugly. It's horrible. It's Kim so Wayans is, like, ugly. so, like, genuinely happy. She feels like this is an opportunity to bond with Lee. Like, when Lee comes home from the club that first night, the mom is, like, split in two directions, where on the one hand, she's like, where have you been? It's past your curfew. But on the other hand, she's like, that shirt that says Angel is really nice. Like, that's cool. Do you want to go shopping together? Like, she's trying to forge a connection here. And Lee's just like, no. And so then the mom clearly off screen decided, like, well, I'm going to go shopping for her and buys this horrendous, oh, it's so like, bad. frilly pink top. <laughs> it looks, It looks like a rendering of a dinosaur when people were starting to come to terms with the idea that there might be feathers where there are just like little frills coming off in like weird spots. Yeah. I like that when the doctor, her coworker is like, Oh, is that for Sharonda? Who is Lee's younger sister? And her mom is so offended because she's like, no, this is for my older daughter. It's horrible. Yeah. And the mom is also annoyed that, Lee has no intention of going to these school dances. She's like, you gotta go to school dances. Like, otherwise you won't have any memories. And Lee is clearly like, memories of what? My parents tried to get me to go to school dances, but not like this. What Uh, did they do? I mean, they just say, are you sure you don't want to go multiple times? And then I would say, no. And then I went to one and it really solidified. I do not want to go to these. Okay. They're boring. (laughs) 
They're really boring. There was a window where my friends and I started bringing taboo, and we would, like, sit at tables outside the dance. Yeah, that's so much more fun. All right, so, point two. Lee meets Bina and basically immediately writes her off as a girly girl who she doesn't want to be friends with. And resents the imposition of this onto her by her mom. Right. So, like, she keeps trying to ditch Bina and just, like, not be a part of this as much as possible. And Bina makes, like, very much, like, the teenager response of, like, my mom is going to ask me about this. And, like, I don't want to get in trouble for this. So do what you want, but I will tell the truth about it. Right. So Lee's trying to get her to lie about walking to school together. And Bina's just like, no, but we can walk in silence. Because she seems willing to put in the effort to be friends. The moment where they're introduced, Bina is clearly also like, it's weird that our moms are doing what kind of seems like a manufactured meeting. But like, fine, we could, we're in this situation now. Right. And so that's kind of where they're at for a few days until we get to point three, where they actually start to bond. And I think it's music that breaks down the barrier. Didn't you have a different shirt on earlier? What? Nothing. No, say what you're going to say. Nothing. Yeah, I had another different shirt. That's cool. So how come you weren't going to say anything about it? About your shirt? About the poem. Because <laughs> you're moody. Moody and quiet. I'm not moody. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, Bina invites her in and starts playing some of her records for her. And Leah's like, oh, this is cool. And Bina makes her a mixed CD because it's 2011. Right. And so, I mean, I will say, sound great. That's what our cold open should have been. We should have been talking about mixed CDs. Oh, yeah. Did you ever have any mixed CDs made for you? Yes, but not romantically as far as I know. Uh, Yeah, same. My friend Reed made me a mix CD before I moved to Singapore, which was a very lovely gift. Yeah, that's cool. But yeah, so like they're really bonding increasingly through music. And ultimately, they're sitting together one time and Bina's like, hey, you know, there's this party Friday night. You should come to it. And Lee's like, oh, yeah, maybe. And then Bina like kisses her on the cheek and then kisses her on the lips. Yeah. All the while, Laura is feeling increasingly abandoned. Which is especially tough for Laura, who again has been thrown out of her house and is like sleeping on her sister's couch. Right. Lee and Laura seem to only really have each other at the start of this movie. And so Laura losing Lee is very painful. Yeah. So this does bring us to point four. Now, it's worth noting when Bina first kisses Lee, Lee just kind of like leaves oh, yeah, awkwardly Lee and just goes to see goes to see Laura to be like, hey, I want to talk to you. And Laura's like, no, like, I don't want to just, like, be here whenever you want me to be here. Like, I'm doing Mm -hmm. this. I'm playing poker. Yeah. And, yeah, so Lee just bolts and then eventually goes home, I think. Is this the night where Sharonda says that she knows and she's okay with it? Yes, I believe it's also the night where she has that, like, late night conversation with her dad. Oh, yes. Where, Where oh, God, that She hears her dad, who is a night, her dad is a night shift detective. And she hears him at home and, you know, at the beginning of the movie when he's going to have a night off, they have like family dinner all sitting around and the mom makes them all dress up nicely for it because it's like an event that they're all going to be able to have dinner together. And now he's home and he's like on the phone. He's, look, he's the clearly movie never talking right. to a mistress. He's talking to a mistress and she comes out and there's this great conversation where 
it is very much parent and teenager, but they're also clearly probing each other, having a sense of, like, something going on. Right. Like, she's probing to figure out if he's cheating, and he's probing to figure out if she's gay. Right. He asks if she's heard about the new lesbian club. He's like, you know, that's a rough area. Stay away from that element. It's very awkward. Yeah, they're both just sort of like poking to see what they can get out. And then later on, you know, during that conversation, she asks about like, hey, like, basically, like, what's the deal when someone likes you? And he really jumps on that. He's like, oh, good. Like, you're interested in boys. Like, he jumps straight to that. Like, mm-hmm. he actually says, like, your mom's going to be really excited to yeah. hear about this. Oh, my God. And then later on, there's a conversation where we see the parents talking and he's saying, look, Lee has a boyfriend. Like, I don't have to ask her. He doesn't say what about, but it's clearly about whether she's a lesbian. He's like, yeah, I would know. Mm-hmm. God, the parents' relationship is so painful to watch. It's fascinating. Good movie. <laughs> yeah, good movie. So this brings us to point four, where Lee agrees to go to the party with Bina while getting Bina to agree to meet Laura and hang out with Laura. And I do like the moment where Laura pulls Lee aside and is like, I'm still hurt, but I understand, and it's nice that you found someone who likes you. Yeah, she seems cool. And i that's a really nice moment in a friendship. Yeah. But then Bina says, oh, do you want to sleep over? You still coming to the party? Um, I don't know. I, I need to try to catch up with Laura. Oh, okay. No, but I do want to hang, but I mean, maybe we can do both. Cool. Yeah. Uh, do you want to spend the night? You know, maybe avoid that whole curfew thing. And, you know, Lee says yes, because she can do whatever she wants with Bina, because her mom... This is a church friend! Yeah, this is a church friend. And so, they have sex. Yes, they do. And that brings us to point five, where (laughs) it all goes wrong. Yeah, uh, no good! No good. Bina says something terrible. She's acting really weird when Lee wakes up and then is like, oh, I'm not gay gay. I'm just doing my thing. We can still be friends. It's like, what is it? It's like really weird. It's so weird. And then basically Lee is like, oh, I need to leave. And then Bina's like, wait, wait, don't leave. Promise you won't tell anyone because that is her concern. Yeah. Because she is a bad person. It's the worst. And then Lee goes home and, like, yells like at her mom. the saving grace for Bina is that she is, like, 17. Yeah. But she's still 17. But, yeah, so Lee goes home. She yells at her mom and, you know, like, breaks down and cries. And that's, I mean, the end of the... That's the end of the romance. That's the end of the romance, yeah. The yeah. rest of the movie is about her relationship with Laura and her family. But there is nothing romantic beyond this horrible next morning. Which I like, because I do like that there is nothing ever hinted at romance between Laura and Lee to, like, just pair them up. Yeah, which would be to very put a button on it for the movie to do. Yeah. It would be very easy to be like, that's why Laura was upset. Mm. And I think there is some element of that there. But better to leave it unsaid. Because especially with teenagers, like, that kind of stuff happens all the time. Yes. But then Lee gets into a prestigious school in California, and... Leaves. Is it Berkeley? Yeah. I couldn't remember. Yeah, so she gets into Berkeley for creative writing, and I really like I'm not running, I'm choosing. I need you to meet with my guidance counselor so you can sign paperwork so I can graduate early. 
I'm sorry, all right? I'm sorry I let her hurt I you. I just need to know if you signed paperwork, yes or no. Can you forgive me? Yes or no. You can always come back home. Things are gonna be different, I promise Dad. you. I'm not running. I'm choosing. A, a great sentiment. And yeah, her mom is the worst. And when they meet up after she comes out and Lee says, I love you, her mom says, I'll pray for you and leaves. The worst response. I got a physical pain in my chest at that. So, Mark, do you find the romance of Pariah believable? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. This feels exactly like something that would happen. Especially with the fact that it's like a church parent friendship. Awkward at first, they find a common ground, they become friends, but the religious trauma is still there for both, which leads Bina to not admit to having actual feelings and ending it in the worst possible way. All of that tracks for me. Um, yeah, definitely believable in all its unfortunate ways. Like I said, like the most saving grace for it is just that like they're teenagers and like teenagers are dumb and like the added pressure of being closeted on top of that, I'm sure it leads to more stress in yes and even worse decision making yeah so mark i i do want want to kind of defer to you more on this one where would you rate this on a scale out of 10 i think i give this a 10 i cannot think of something that isn't believable it feels right to me i think this is a 10 this This movie is a 10 as far as i'm concerned this movie overall is very believable great picture great movie do you think any of these people are dateable I mean, basically, either of them. It's hard with teen movies. Yes, especially when they are, like, effectively, like, when the script has done a good job of creating teenagers. Yeah, like, they're very much teenagers. Right, (laughs) which I have no interest in dating. Yeah. So, probably, it's a no. Also, I mean, there's, the fact that they are both closeted in this way makes it tough, too. Yeah. Because then that means that you are, to some extent, closeted. I don't even think Bina is, like, a bad person. I think she does a bad thing, but she's also in a tough situation. Absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with her, Neither of them are bad people. They're just not dateable. Yeah. Um, They are not a couple, so they would not stay together. Yes. But if you had to pick somebody from the movie to date, whom would you choose? This is kind of a tough one, although maybe there's just one answer. I mean, I was going to go with the teacher. Yep, that's what I meant. Yeah, but Laura also seems dateable. Yeah, she does get her GED. She gets her GED. She's really trying. She's just had a rough go of it. Yeah. But she's very caring. Yeah. All right, Mark. I don't know that we've seen a Sundance movie turned into a musical yet. So should Pariah be the first? I think this could make a very good musical. What's the vibe you're going for? I mean, music is very central to this movie. It has very heightened emotions that are often conveyed through the background music. So I don't think it would be like a jukebox musical. I think it would be like they sing. But I think a small, intimate musical to tell this story could work. Um, I do want to correct what I said. There has been at least one Sundance film adapted into a stage musical. Because in 2011, the Little Miss Sunshine musical debuted. That could be very good or very bad. The fascinating thing about it, it's directed by James Lapine with music and lyrics by William Finn. Hmm. 
So those are like some interesting names for it. Yeah. I don't know. If you've seen the uh, Little Miss Sunshine musical, sound off on Twitter at Love the Love Pod and let us know what you think. Um, what do you think? Uh, Pariah, I'm I lean more no for this. If it were going to be staged at all, I'm more inclined just to make it a play. Yeah, I think it would be a very different, like very different feel. But I think the story of like young gay rejection, love, and parents can be told through song. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I just think you keep the particular vibe of this movie more through a play than a musical. Oh, yeah. I agree with that. But I think it's best as a movie because the cinematography is one of the best parts. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I'm glad that we watched this, Mark. Thank you for discovering it. Yeah. Thanks, Internet. So uh, next week, we're going to be... Actually, this is unusual. We're doing two movies back-to-back that you chose. I know. It's rare. So next week, we are going to be talking about the original 1964 three or 64 depending on where you count from pink panther movie i watched this as a kid and i was excited to revisit it as an adult i have never seen it before and i really don't know what i'm getting into yeah i mean i first watched it as a kid and was shocked that it was live action Uh, (laughs) so that alone really threw me off that it was not about the panther but we will get into that next week all right. Well, until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show, especially on Apple Podcast. Reviewing and subscribing helps new listeners find the show. Mark, what is the best piece of dating advice you got from Pariah? <sighs> Don't do anything that happens in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um... I mean, sharing music is a great way to forge a connection because you learn about the emotional inner life of people through the music they listen to. That's a really good piece of advice. I was going to say, invite them to stuff. That's a good way to hang out with people. Yeah, that's also a very good low-pressure way of getting to know someone. Yeah, it's a group hang. There is good advice, but boy, is it not followed through well. All right, well, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye. A mixtape. He made a mixtape. He was thinking of me, which shows he cares. Sometimes when someone has a crush on you, they'll make you a mixtape to give you a clue.